Welcome to another episode of Faith and Culture Conversations. Pastors, ministers, and elders, we believe the enemy is after your mind and heart, so we're stepping into the fray. Today we discuss the modern phenomenon of scientism. What is the relationship between faith and science? What can science tell us and what can it not tell us? Ultimately, we want to try to answer the question, can we as Christians live rightly in the world if we just follow the science? Welcome to the conversation. We're back together with almost all the usual suspects. Pastor Van is out today on other business, but we're here together with Kyle Wisdom and Keith Lowry and myself, Ben Lowry. And, well, you're actually showing up late for the conversation. We've just finished talking about Disney's movie, The Emperor's New Groove, um, and uh, laughed about all the funny things happening in that movie. But we'd like to take a hard right turn from that conversation and talk for a second about The Founding Fathers. Could uh, I provide my own soundtrack for the rest of this podcast? Yes, Kronk, dun, you may. Yeah. Okay, so so um, we do we do we're going to get to our main topic here in a minute, but I want to start by talking about the founding fathers, and that's going to sound like um, kind of a weird thing to do, but so here's the question: Were the founding fathers right to resist a one percent tax without representation? Were they right to do that? It's just it's it's a yes or no question. As a red-blooded American, I feel constrained to say yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. It, it, well, pops, what would you say? Um. I, I I think it's a. You're you're on shaky ground if you if you try to outthink the founders in some way on some <laughs> of these questions. I don't think I have enough information, but even if I had all the information, I mean, these people were world history right. genius thinkers about yeah. things and so, so i was listening to some historical um guys talk about this very question recently and they said yes they said most of the time we we sort of try to boil the issue down to that one question it was a one percent tax what were we doing fighting a revolution of one percent tax but what we don't understand is the history of England and Europe at large sort of leading up to that moment in the 18th century. Um, what, what was going on there at the time, Parliament and the Crown had sort of shifted the authority structure around over the last kind of couple hundred years and had landed with the point uh, to the point where in the 18th century, 1700s, Parliament actually did not have the authority or the jurisdiction to tax the colonies, but they decided they were going to do it. Okay, um, so yes, the, the answer is yes. Due to a number of historical factors leading up to that moment, uh, they were we were right. The founding fathers were right to resist a one percent tax. So, like Oklahoma can't tax you, Kyle. Well, and praise the Lord for that. Yeah, I mean th- they might only tax you a dime, but if they tried, you would be well within your rights to say yeah. no. It would be illegal. It would be a complete breach of the contract that I have with Oklahoma, which is absolutely zero. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't negotiated my contract with Oklahoma yet, so you're going to have well, to do yeah. Do better than I did, apparently. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so something strange has happened over the past several years. This is a segue, okay? Um, 
during a time of great political and social unrest of, uh, on a variety of fronts, elected leaders of our nation have ceded decision-making power in several free states over to non-elected scientific experts. And we might say that's justified or unjustified, but it's happened. And that's not really debatable. The, the new mantra of our times tends to be, follow the science, okay? Kind of, kind of in the way that the church for years w- was found saying, follow the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but maybe that's um, jumping the shark a little bit. How did, how did the scientists end up running things? All right? That, that's, that's a question I kind of want us to flesh out here right at the start. Well, it's certainly been a several hundred year ascent to the top. Uh, there was a time when theology was the queen of the sciences, and that was sort of your core of your curriculum, even in the university level. Um, and it was only after that, really, you know, Francis Bacon and Post, when we created the scientific method and we sort of used the natural sciences as a method for truth, that science sort of slowly started elevating itself within all the disciplines. Um, I would say now, though, it's connected to really a retreat of religion, in particular Christianity, from the public discussion. Like once yeah. you sort of create that vacuum. Yeah, I I think that. I mean, this is a little bit speculation, but oh, this part's not speculation. Life expectancy and quality of life worldwide has been improving for multiple generations. Um, poverty extreme poverty has been declining for multiple generations. And a lot of that is due to technological advances and the expansion of economic freedom. But technological advances have improved healthcare, have improved life expectancy, have reduced, um, you know, deaths in childbirth. Uh, I mean, there's just this whole sort of snowball of yummy goodness that have accrued to human existence as it relates to science. And so, I think there's this temptation to look to that for more yummy goodness. Right. I mean, the cow's been giving milk. Let's go back to the cow and get some more milk. And so it's it's understandable at one level. I think there's another component to this too, though, which is I think we have an inclination to put our hope in the works of our own hands. Hmm. I think this was sort of hinted at, at least, in the Ten Commandments when God said, don't make graven images because he was sort of telegraphing maybe explicitly, maybe indirectly that you people have a tendency to worship the things you make and you need to stop it. And I think there is, there is a bit of this infatuation with science that's somehow wrapped up in uh, our inclination to love what we have made. And I think what we've really started doing is, applying the scientific method to other areas of human experience, we may not have applied it when it was first created. Yeah. So even just the idea that we can analyze um, someone's uh, mental state with science, mm-hmm. right? The idea that we could do that or that we, we should do that is an interesting question that kind of our last 50, 60 years, we've really said, yes, we can apply it here. And so I think what we've done is we've said science is a tool that can be used in any scenario, yeah. and you can come up with truth using it. Yeah. Uh, that Well, so, Kyle, you, you use the operative term there, truth, um, and without without sort of allowing the conversation to devolve into a discussion of what is truth, um, 
uh, th- th- it probably has to at least be talked about that scientists have become sort of the new high priests, the new arbiters of truth um, for our society. And and th- and so when we talk about the term scientism, there really is a religious aspect to that. The reason we started with the Founding Fathers question was because we wanted to sort of highlight something, <clears throat> the nature of authority, and where authority comes from, and how somebody assumes authority, and what we should do when those people assume that kind of authority. Um, and, and there are historical factors that help us answer the question, what was going on in Parliament when they were taxing us this 1% tax, and what gave them the right to do that? The same kinds of questions apply today when we say, how did scientists get promoted to lawmakers of the land, or the lawmakers defer their elected representation to scientists? Um, there, there's a truth relationship, to your point, Kyle. Yeah, well, and so exactly to your point, we were having a conversation with uh, some friends of mine uh, during COVID. This was uh, late 2020, I believe it was, and they were saying that their uh, – pastoral staff, their church staff, had to make some tough decisions about COVID and what they were going to do and what measures they were going to take to keep people safe and whether they're going to be open, whether they're going to be closed. And one of the things that they said was, well, they have a lot of people because of where their church is situated in the world. Uh, They were close to a CDC research site. And so they actually had lots of CDC scientists in their church. (laughs) And so they basically just said, we just basically ask them, what do we do? And then we do what they say. Mm. You know, and obviously, I'm sure that's a massive simplification. Right. But it made me wonder, made me ask the question: Why would you, why would you do that? And should you just simply do whatever CDC says, even if it's something that's within the realm of CDC's expertise? Because CDC doesn't decide how to run a church. Mm-hmm. There's a difference there, mm-hmm. right? So we're saying, oh, because CDC knows about science. You know, they must know all truth as related to, you know, whatever's in that sphere. And so if we can ask them, they'll know the right answer when, well, shouldn't a pastor also have input into the truth about how a church should be run? You know, so the authority question there got really muddy, and it was because they had the capital S science on their side. Yeah. Yeah, so the relationship between faith and science— is an interesting one, and I'm gonna I want to couch it in those terms. It's often you'll you'll hear couched in the, in terms of the relationship between religion versus facts, right? Um, but the religion between faith and science is is different. Is science really a collection of facts, truths, um, or and, and religion is really faith is a, is a question of sort of blind assent to a number of unprovable propositions. Is is that a fair uh, representation of the relationship between faith or religion and and science? I I don't think it's a I, I don't think that definition of science is I think that's sort of a popular understanding maybe of what science is when you say follow the science and for people who are really um, paying attention to science it's a nonsensical statement in the sense that science is not a uh, a fixed target. It is a an approach to gaining understanding mm-hmm. about material things, uh, and I use the term material things advisedly and and intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a great approach to gaining understanding about material things, but you can't reason from what is to what ought to be. Mm-hmm. Well, and and so and so this issue of science is very limited 
in its ability to to produce understanding, uh, but um, understanding is not the same thing as wisdom. And so, understanding is really the same thing as knowledge, either. Right, it's and, somewhere between knowledge and wisdom. And it's not, and expertise is, does not constitute wisdom. Right, and and so, I think, um, you know, there's a whole separate set of concerns, and that is what really constitutes human flourishing. Right, and can science really answer those questions? Yes, and. I think you have to kind of go back a bit to ask the question what science even is. And I think you've touched on this really well, Keith. Science is, in fact, a philosophy. Mm-hmm. It isn't a. It isn't some new thing. Like philosophy happened for a while, and then we found the better thing of science. Science is a specific philosophical approach. Um, I'm going to use a really big term here. It is an epistemological method, meaning it is a method to discover how we know what we know. And so when you talk about science— it's taking a very specific set of presupposed ideas about the world and then using those as tools to create a method to look at specifically, as you said, the physical or material universe. And so there are certain things it can't answer, and there are also certain things it can't discover. Yeah. Right. So there's, I think there's a, an element of religious faith applied to the philosophy of science. This is why we're calling it scientism. There's a religious fervor around what scientists as the high priests of knowledge can bestow upon society uh, as, as the way, the right path to survival, right? And, and that faith is not necessarily rooted in our own knowledge. It's rooted in their special knowledge, okay? And so, and so in other words, in the same way that um, medieval Christians would see their priests say, hoc est corpus, this behold the body like this is the body and and they they heard hocus pocus right this is <laughs> no where, way <laughs> yes this is where the term hocus pocus came from is because people saw priests elevating the host saying hoc est corpus this is the body and they heard hocus pocus and they thought this is magic the exact same kind of social phenomenon is happening around science we see technical terms and tools and latin phrases and all of these things that that are the accoutrements of religion, and, and, and we say, yeah, I'm going to put my faith in them because they seem to have knowledge that leads to life. Well, it's magical knowledge, right? It's because magical it's, knowledge. For, in some cases, it's hard enough to comprehend that for, for many people, it seems like magic. There's a sleight of hand that takes place between science and scientism, and the sleight of hand is this. Science on the one hand says, here's a good methodology for unpacking and, ex- and discovering or increasing our understanding about the material world. Um, scientism says something else. Scientism says there is nothing other than the material world, and so this method is the only way to gain understanding about anything. Yeah, right. And that's really where the sleight of hand takes place, because right. it's one thing to say, we're going to use this methodology to, f- to understand the material world. It's another thing to say we're going to assume that the material world is all there is, ergo, no knowledge is valid except knowledge acquired in this way. And that's where we get into trouble. When you look at how science was created, when it was created, where it was created, it was trying to fill a particular purpose for a predominantly Christian society. So they were saying, listen, we know all of these things about our universe from our Bibles, but if you're trying to discover, you know, how to farm better— you can't just say, well, why do crops grow? Well, because God makes them grow. Okay, yes, we know that is the fact. 
how is God making that happen? And so science right. was created in, a, in an environment where certain questions were already answered, and so they were intentionally avoiding the God does it answer. Okay, so we've arrived at our first principle, and we need to, we need to make sure this is clear here, okay? Um, science is born specifically, if you look at history, science is born of a Judeo-Christian worldview and can only be born of a Judeo-Christian worldview. There were a lot of things that the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians uh, have given us um, prior to a Judeo-Christian worldview sort of emerging as the predominant worldview on the scene, but they never gave us science, not the way that we got science during the uh, medieval period and the Renaissance. Why is it that it was born of a Christian worldview? It's because we start with the assumption that the material world is created by a good God and is itself good, therefore. So it science is only possible from a, from a Christian worldview that believes that there is an intelligent God who built this and it's and it can't and that the creation he built is itself intelligible. Most has other worldviews has yeah. order. Most other worldviews have assumed that the material world has some baked in evil. It's bad. It's corrupting. Christians said, no, it's it's good. God said it's good. Now it may be fallen, but it's still good. And so it was within a Christian framework of understanding the world that science was born. So this whole idea of Galileo and like his war with the ecclesiastics, his war with the religious authorities of his day, it's another example of not understanding our founding fathers, okay? What was happening there was Galileo took an interpretation of the planetary motions and all these things, heliocentric, or blah, 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 that was widely divergent from the academic consensus of his day, okay? So this is going to have bearing on modern times. Galileo took a view based on what he understood that was widely divergent from the academic consensus. It was his fellow academicians who hated what he was saying so much that they recruited religious leaders to take up their case. That's where this whole mis misunderstanding, misconception about the war between science and religion comes from. The truth is, a, a right understanding of the material world, to, to your point, uh, Dad, Keith, is is actually, um, there's a difference between science and scientism, right? Science, uh, Galileo would say that there are two um, revelations. There is natural revelation, we would call general revelation, and then there is uh, supernatural revelation or scripture. Um, and, and he said we had, to, we had to do both. But there's, there's a difference between that and scientism, obviously. Right. And I think really the line between those two things, between science and scientism, is understanding the limits of what science is and how it works. Yeah. So, for instance, you mentioned earlier you can't get an, an ought from an is. Part of that's because science is inherently inductive, right? So the difference yeah. between logic, for the most part, or in certain circumstances being deductive, mean you're going from a general truth to a particular principle. Science always has to go the other way. They always have to say, let's take these tiny little specific data points and build toward what seems to be generally true. The problem with that is you can't cross that infinite gap between it's been true so far and it will always be true, right? Or this is the way it's always been demonstrated up to this point and it's never going to change. Right. So I think some of this also 
<clears throat> I think it relates to at some fundamental level the you know the biblical teaching, which is really sort of everywhere, especially in the Old Testament, <clears throat> but beyond, is um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. That statement is, I mean, I think very often we read that and we think it's prescriptive. It's saying you should fear the Lord. But it may at least, and maybe more so, be descriptive in which it's saying there can be no wisdom without this sort of acceptance of the fundamental facet of reality, which is everything comes from him. And and I don't care if you're talking about science or you can you can get some facts right, but you won't really get an understanding of anything. It, it doesn't matter what we want. It if if God is real and He in fact is the source of everything, then if you truly want a scientific understanding, you're gonna it's gonna have to somehow flow from that basic set of assumptions. Yeah, there's a difference between understanding science can tell you what a thing can do mm-hmm. or what a thing is made of or how a thing does something that it does but it cannot tell you what a thing is for right um and and that's something that wisdom needs there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom we, I want to talk about the difference between knowledge and wisdom I I want to I want to stop for just a second and talk about a contemporary a current uh, issue that's been going on in the and um, in, in this neighborhood of uh, science versus scientism. One of the things scientism asks us to do is to draw um, dogmatic conclusions, dogmatic scientific conclusions. It, it looks for consensus. Uh, that's what scientism does. Science, on the other hand, uh, is built. It's actually one of the baseline necessary preconditions for science to work properly is for conclusions that are drawn to be challenged rigorously by other scientists. And other scientists who challenge the conclusions of the predominant worldview have to be given a platform to share their findings. Otherwise, science isn't happening. Scientism is happening. We're finding dogmatic scientific conclusions that, by the way, what's interesting is um, we, when that happens, we're elevating science to a level of law or to a religious level, so that anyone who trespasses against that law is guilty of a sin against the community. Hmm. So w- w- there's a there's an example of this in a guy named Joe Rogan. I hesitate to even bring him up because he's probably one of our chief competitors in the in the podcastosphere. If they um, weren't listening yeah. to Joe Rogan, they would be listening. The, yeah, to no, us. Yeah. that's right. He's that's gobbled right. up. He's kind of got a monopoly in the podcast market. Um, but he is on the outside looking in of the current. Um, scientific scientism consensus about what constitutes um, right action with regard to the pandemic or, or or COVID. If you're infected with COVID, you should take these kind of steps forward for healing. He brought some guys onto his show who were doing what scientists are taught to do, doing what science is supposed to do, and challenge the predominant conclusions using the scientific method. In other words, this is how we arrive at scientific fact, right? They're doing that. He brought these guys on his show, and because he brought these guys on his show and they espoused some scientific um, perspective that didn't fall in line with the predominant dogmatic conclusions of scientism, um, he is now being uh, anathematized. Can I use that term because it's a religious term? 
he is being excommunicated by society and being uh, blacklisted or, or, or trying to be blacklisted from from Spotify. What do you guys make of that? Well, there's an old kind of funny joke or saying where people say, um, if you owe the bank a uh, million dollars, the bank owns you. But if you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, you owe the you own the bank. Um, and I think there's a little bit of that going on with Joe Rogan right now. I mean, he's being anathematized, but it remains to be seen who who owns whom in that whole situation. But assuming, but it is the case that he's being, you know, kind of pummeled a little bit by by for his departure. He may not get from, kicked out, but he certainly yeah, they're going to try. Approval, right? They're they're, they're definitely going to try. Yeah. And so I I think that I mean it's a good example I think because. Um, it is the case that he's just in trouble because of his uh, departure from the accepted orthodoxy. And, you know, there was a time when, in science in particular, that was the whole point, was to discover Diverge new things accept, we didn't know yeah. already. You know, if we confine ourselves to the current state of knowledge, well, that's not science. And, and I'm not—none of us here are actually taking— you know, saying that Joe Rogan's perspective or the guys yeah. he brought on are right and everyone else is wrong. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it sort of elevates, brings to the surface this weird scientism versus science. Uh, so it's not really religion versus science. It's kind of like two different religions against each other. We've got the, we've got the religion of Christian faith and then the religion of scientism. Science is probably somewhere between those things. Uh, and, and it's worth pointing out that uh, Joe Rogan did not bring on only people from one side of that conversation. Hmm. There, it was it was within a series of podcasts he right. did where he brought on people who were agreeing with the CDC, people who were you know from a multitude of perspectives, and then he finally got to this one perspective that mm -hmm. the broader scientific consensus, or honestly, it seems the broader uh, sort of uh, media consensus, maybe right. uh, more precisely. Uh, decided they didn't like. So, you know, you asked, how are you responding? In some ways, I was like, wow, this is one of the best illustrations I've ever seen of church discipline. Like, <laughs> like uh, Spotify knows how to do church discipline better than a lot of churches do. Um, the only problem is it's showing how religious it is right. for, for that community. Right. Because it's not just, hey, you disagree with us. It's you even brought on a speaker who spoke and disagreed with us right. it's like that moment you are bringing on it joe rogan is a heretic he is a scientific heretic so so we're gonna we're gonna transition here kyle i think what you've said is a good is a good tipping point for the conversation to shift here into the realm of values okay because we started talking about authority and where it comes from and how these scientists ascended the hill of cultural authorities uh, or even <laughs> political authorities um oddly enough, today. Uh, and I think it's because we view authorities, we assign ultimate—we cede authority willingly to those who possess knowledge, who we believe possess knowledge or wisdom that enriches, protects, or preserves our lives and values. Okay? So we willingly submit ourselves only to those who, truly who we truly believe have the ability to enhance, preserve, or prolong our lives. That sort of assumes, in this case, that scientists are the ones uh, have the best chance of being able to do that. It also sort of assumes that the preservation of our lives is rightly at the top of a hierarchy of values. 
Does that make sense? So, so one of the yeah. things we saw from the very beginning of the pandemic, we used to ask this question to students. It's it's a it's a common youth pastor trope. Okay, you'll be talking to students and you'll say something like, "Okay, your house is on fire. Mm. All right, your house is on fire. What you can only take three things with you. What are you going to take? Right, your house is burning down. You got ten seconds. What are you going to grab? Right. Well, that was put to us mm. as a society. And and we preserved strip clubs, liquor stores, and grocery stores, right? Like, and 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 we. No, but but so I realize that may be a, a bit unfair, but we were willing to suspend our worship. There were some mm. things that we were not willing to suspend, but we were willing to suspend our worship. So when when push came to shove, we left the house, or rather, we we went home, <laughs> um, and stayed home, and. and and took the three things or whatever it was that mattered most to us. If So let's talk about a hierarchy of values and what this has exposed about us. Is it right to say that safety and um, physical preservation, is, is that right to be at the top, the very top of a hierarchy of values? Why or why, or why not? Well, I think that um, I think there is value in human life, and I think it's a Christian ethic that places value on it. I don't, <clears throat> I don't necessarily think that the Bible teaches that ultimate value is in human life. I mean, there are certain things worth dying for, just to put it bluntly. Uh, the the martyrs um, are commended in the Book of Revelation, where it says. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And so there is a hierarchy of values, and human life preservation is on that hierarchy somewhere. But there's a discussion to be had about where it fits right. on that hierarchy. Um, I think that um, I think it's important uh, to have that discussion, but we also have to recognize that there is implicit in our existence, whether we are conscious of it or not, we live with some calculus regarding what we consider to be acceptable risk. We, we do not uh, value our lives more than, you know, lots of people got on airplanes and went to the Super Bowl this weekend. And those, that's, you know, in the pantheon of things to do, getting on airplanes is not zero risk. And so we don't reduce our risk to zero we, we assume some level of it's an okay risk level to take because it fits, you know, within some acceptable threshold that I'm willing to live with. And the same thing as driving cars and, you know, um, there, I mean, there's a million things we do that have some level of risk. If you read, I think I've talked in this podcast before about a book by uh, a guy. He's a teenage boy who was dying of tuberculosis, didn't even know he had tuberculosis, but it's his diary. He lived on a Civil War plantation in the South. It's his diary of living during the Civil War. And, and what went on you know, in his life during that time. And what struck me when I read that diary was not just what life was like being a kid on a Southern plantation. That was interesting enough, good enough reason to read the book. But what struck me was how often some minor wound that someone received in his sphere of visibility somebody in town or somebody was in the barn and they got a little cut and it flared up into some massive abscess and 
They were hacking off limbs to save people's lives, and very often people died from very minor things because this was pre-antibiotics, right? Mm. And yet they didn't cower in their homes. And, and so there is, I mean, at one level, what we've been going through is a massive recalibration of acceptable risk in the world. But um, my, my point here is that we don't assume that minimizing risk to maximize lifespans is the measure of how we should live our lives. It's just not always brought to the fore as an explicit consideration right? like it has been over the last couple of years. That's one of the reasons, Keith, why when people ask me now, like if you had to go back in time to any period, I draw a hard line at anything pre-penicillin, I'm yeah. out. Like yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to go back there. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, there's maybe some nuance to be had. I want to maybe put in the best light possible, especially in the medical community, people who are making some really tough decisions over a very tough period of time. Because honestly, if you're asking hierarchy of values, I think a hospital's hierarchy of values, the top should be the preservation of human life. You know, I don't want them asking questions about, well, is he a good person? You know, well, is he— At the hospital. Right. So, uh, and I think to to the— And and so, by the way, that's an important point to make, Kyle, what you just said. I just want to say it as an aside really fast. That in some places, hospitals are taking upon taking it upon themselves to ask about questions about quality of life. Yes. Well, yes, right. yes, yes. So. Exactly. And so I think a hospital needs to ask, hey, hey, we shouldn't be asking, is he a good person? Is he going to have a good life after this? Right. We preserve life. That's right. our role. Yeah, I'm with you I think that. I think with government, their, their question, the preservation of human life is also very high up there. I would maybe say that the top one should actually be liberty. Um with maybe the preservation of human life only as a secondary or maybe co-equal. 1A, 1B. 1A, 1B, co-equal perhaps. Um, you know, those are those are paramount uh, discussions for the government. But then it comes down to people like the church, people like uh, specifically myself. So when I'm looking at Kyle, right, what should be at the top of my hierarchy of values? Um, and I think that has to boil down to um, my purpose. So you mentioned, uh, we've mentioned purpose before a lot on this podcast. And my the preservation of my own life as a Christian should only be to the extent that it enables me to fulfill my purpose. So if I'm going to say, hey, I should do everything possible in this moment to keep myself alive, which I do on a regular basis, I do that because I actually believe God has created me for a good purpose. And as long as I am able to continue to fulfill that purpose, that's my goal. Keep myself alive so that I can fulfill my purpose. Yeah, there was a, there has been in literature, and even outside literature, just folklore and sort of a, a, a oh pre enlightenment sort of understanding of the world that a, a place called limbo. Okay, hmm. and and limbo is bad. If you get trapped in limbo, here's the problem with that: you're kind of still alive, but you're only just persisting. You don't have the ability to enjoy or pursue your purpose or impact the world or, or or do anything that really values you're just sort of persisting and and it's like it's like that's all that science can offer you it's all that scientism is offering you right now it can't tell you anything about your purpose it can't tell you anything about enjoyment right someone uh, i think it was tolkien who talked about sinning against a rubber ball like i read this recently in a book by a guy named cr wiley um he talked about sinning against a rubber ball would be to cut it open in search of its bounce. <laughs> okay? Um, the, the bouncy ball is best understood, okay, when you enjoy it. 
And so there's something missing. Science gives you something, but it can't give you everything. Um, it's like it puts you in limbo if all it offers you is perpetual survival. So um, in, um, I think it was 1963, the year he died, C.S. Lewis, uh, somewhere along the way, maybe it was earlier than that, I, I can't remember, um, but he, he responded to a criticism of some of his space trilogy novels that he wrote, uh, and maybe that hideous strength, his final one was, as much as anything, a and his indictment of of scientism. Um, <clears throat> and he wrote back to someone who had criticized that hideous strength and its sort of anti-science, sort of perceived anti-science posture. And he wrote this. He said, if any of my writings could be plausibly accused of being a libel on scientists, it would be actually out of the silent planet. It certainly is an attack, if not on scientists, yet on something which might be called scientism. A certain outlook on the world which is usually connected with the popularization of the sciences that is much less common among actual scientists than among their readers. It is, mm-hmm. in a word, he said, the belief that the supreme moral end is the perpetuation of our own species. And this is to be pursued even if, in the process of being fitted for survival, our species has to be stripped of all those things for which we value it, of pity, of happiness, and of freedom. And this is kind of getting at the the thing I was saying earlier, which is um, human life is valuable. And certainly God prohibits our taking other people's lives. But he does not prohibit, and in fact, he honors the giving of our life for something valuable. We, we, um, we tease the French around here. And uh, we may or may not have been teasing the French before we pushed the record button on this podcast because they, they took peculiar action during World War II to avoid the loss of human life. Um, but they sacrificed freedom because at the end of the day, what the, they measured the value of human life as being greater than the value of free human life. And you have to contrast that with the sacrifice of the English or or any number of other, the sacrifice yeah. of many Austrians, the sacrifice of the Americans, this, you know, all those who um, laid their lives down to preserve the freedom of their fellows uh, is a different, is it, they had a, let's just highlight the fact that they had a different hierarchy of values than the French. And risk, so the, Risk is only ever one side of a coin, right? So when we talk about doing something noble, right? There's the there's the risk versus the reward, right? So nobody um, applauds the bravery of. And so you used the plane analogy earlier. If you know a plane is never zero risk, nobody applauds like a drug dealer for flying a plane across a border with a bunch of you know cocaine in the back. Because at the end of the day, he took a risk that had no actual benefit to human beings. Right. So we can applaud, you know, we can applaud his ability to fly a plane. But at the end of the day, that risk was an unnecessary risk. It's not it's not a noble risk. But the risk of defending another human's life or preserving liberty or um, stepping into the gap for those that need you. You have to ask the question, is the risk worth the reward? Right. Mm -hmm. And so often we just say, is it a risk? No. Mm-hmm. And that's never how human beings have operated. It's never how God called human beings to operate. 
uh, he always asked Christians to step forth in uh, faith. And I, I don't even necessarily want to contrast faith with fear because I think that's sometimes kind of a, a, a bad dichotomy. But he's saying you need to step out in uh, a, a virtue we used to believe in called courage and right. actually do what is necessary. And if it is necessary enough, do it regardless of the risk. Right. And so uh, science never a- science can never tell us is the risk worth the reward. All science can tell me is you have a 3.8% chance of dying. <laughs> right. Right. It is not going to help you measure values. So there's a really great quote. Uh, Ben, you've used this on a number of occasions. Um, one of the great uh, movies in the twenty first in the twentieth century to question the scientific establishment is the movie Jurassic Park. Oh yeah, and it uh, is if it is one of the best displays of some of the limitations of science, specifically the human limitations of science, but also science in general. Uh, but one of the characters in it asked the question, you know, the, the scientists are creating dinosaurs for those that haven't seen the movie. And uh, they're talking about how amazing it is that they've created these creatures that have been extinct for millions of years. And uh, look at how amazing it is. And they're going to make this amusement park. We can go and see them. And one of the guys stops them and he starts arguing. And one of the things he says is so profound. He says, all of you have been wondering whether or not you could. You never stop to wonder whether or not you should. And so when it comes to science, science can only ever answer the question, can we? It will never be able to answer the question, should we? This is why anytime somebody says, well, the science says we should, you have to stop them. It's like hard stop. Science has only told us, okay, if we do this, these are some of the consequences. Right. But it can't tell us a should. Right. So, by the way, there's a lot of stuff written by Michael Crichton, who who's behind Jurassic Park, the author of the book originally, uh, worth reading. Um, I, I thought since you brought him up, I'd read um, a, a small section of a speech he gave. Uh, is that better? A speech he gave to um, on the question of global warming. And he said, uh, I've been asked to talk about what I consider the most important challenge facing mankind, and I have a fundamental answer. The greatest challenge facing mankind is the challenge of distinguishing reality from fantasy truth from propaganda perceiving the truth has always been a challenge to mankind but in the information age or as i think of it the disinformation age it takes on a special urgency and importance Mm -hmm. so this was long before covid long you know before he died um i think he i think he died i think michael Crichton's dead at this point um but anyway to to your to your to the point you were making um i think that um the this gets back to the question of science not offering any real meaningful help in terms of understanding um, what the good is. It can tell us what is. It can't tell us what's good. And unless you just assume that what is is good. Hmm. And and so I, I the other thing I was going to say, just real quick, um, you were talking about this. We were talking about this business of life you know, giving life not being the ultimate good always. There was, I mean, to make this more real and less theoretical, I guess, there was a, you know, a young man born in 1981 named Jason Dunham. He was a U.S. Marine. Uh, he died in 2004, posthumously receiving the Medal of Honor for his actions in Iraq. Um, 
he was involved in a firefight and he he basically personally covered a hand grenade um to protect his and gave his life for his for his unit uh mm. and saved them um and in fact a buddy of his afterwards said you know jason always talked about the fact that you know we got these magical kevlar helmets uh and he said i wonder i wonder if a kevlar helmet would would keep you from would would suppress a hand grenade you know it's like this magical shield and and apparently the the moment came when um he had to make this choice and i guess he pulled his helmet off and threw it over the grenade and covered it with his body you know and uh and lost his life as part of that and you know he's a medal of honor recipient now but my point here is there are things worth giving your life for Mm -hmm. preservation of your own life is not the measure of virtue so one of the things and because i think we've said this several times now that there is a a place for not preserving your own life or rather giving up something of yourself in order to either preserve the life of your fellow soldiers or uh, take care of those who are in need so throughout i would say the pandemic there's been a a large number of scientific choices being made with a similar argument which is we have to protect people so we're going to enact this policy or that policy we're gonna the science says if we don't do this x number of people will die which margins of error being what they are the scientists can tell us some of those things to some with with some measure of you know consistency and so i guess one of my questions is if so like if science says you know if we don't enact this policy based on the science we know that a million people are going to die you know because that's some of the projections we got from this pandemic we've already seen hundreds of thousands of people die from the pandemic already does somebody who's in a leadership position have a moral obligation to defend those lives if I, that's what the science is telling them? So if that's what the science is telling them is right, the question. Which, which is right. a big question. So again, we're, we're talking about um, sort of a, a, a fiction that there is such a thing as scientific consensus hmm. on any of these issues um, at any level. I mean, the, I, I, I don't mean to just d- to disparage science in general, but I think that there is a comfortable, a safe illusion that science has reached definitive conclusions on these things. Yeah, there's far less certainty, and there has been far less right. certainty through this whole process than than policymakers would have us believe. And you can see this with their constantly retreating position on many things. So, so for that reason, I would say politicians have a responsibility to take it into account but they do not cede the decision-making power to the conclusions, so-called, of the scientists. There's a really important article re- written recently by a guy named Norman Doidge. I, I found. Um, it's called Needlepoints. It's published in Tablet Magazine. and It's interesting. It's something worth considering. But one of the things he highlights in the opening is that we know more about the pandemic now than we did when it first started, but many of the so-called policies of science that were instituted at the beginning are still being favored and clamored for and held on to in despite better scientific understanding. Mm. And so um, I, I think that's why it's really important for authorities, yes, to take that into account and to save lives, but what we didn't take into account, what they didn't want to take into account, but people were talking about 
at the beginning was the cost to human life of isolation. We didn't talk about the fact, for instance, that one of the leading causes to uh, shorten lifespan among the elderly is isolation. But they were one of the most isolated groups during the last couple years. Um, we didn't talk about the cost um, to human life and suicide based on loss of quality of life and dignity. Um, that all this we didn't talk about the increase in poverty or whatever other issue might be involved. So a politician, or rather a political leader, I don't. A politician is kind of a, a dirty word, um, <laughs> but 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 someone who's really leading a nation has a responsibility to act wisely. Mm-hmm. That's somebody who doesn't defer all decisions to one particular discipline, but understands that he he has a responsibility to consider a wide range of issues. And make a and and chart a wise course forward, right? I like I like that, and I th- I think that highlights one of the other limitations of science, which is the idea that it's theory laden. So a lot of people think that science is just sort of this naive, innocent process by which somebody sort of just looks at the universe as it is and then comes to conclusions based upon what's exactly in front of them. When in reality, one of the things you have to do is create hypotheses. And you actually have to look at the world and say, okay, I'm going to measure for, in the example you gave, Ben, uh, COVID deaths, maybe, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's what they're gonna do. And they're gonna give you numbers to the best of their ability based on that question. But if they're not thinking about those other questions, those things completely get missed by the net, right? It's Mm -hmm. like if you make a four inch, uh, a, a net with four inch holes, and then you're surprised you didn't catch any three-inch fish, right? It's the, the theory has to, can only catch what it's designed to catch. Right. And so a lot of times uh, leaders or even ourselves, we're basing our decisions on what science can tell us about four-inch fish yeah. without considering the yeah, other things. We, we have subjugated everything to one overarching goal without consideration for the accumulation of harms mm-hmm. that pursuing that overarching goal uh, contributes to. I mean... Remains to be seen, but <clears throat> some smart people suspect that the excess deaths versus the statistical expectation of cancers and heart disease and diabetics and a lot of other things are going to far exceed the, the, the COVID deaths over the next several years, the accumulated COVID deaths uh, over the next several years. We'll see. I mean, the, the, but I think that the larger point is that um, there is this decision that has to be made regarding where this fits within the other things. I think it was Flannery O'Connor who said, um, she said that um, the United States may not be a Christian nation, but it's definitely a nation that's haunted by Christ. Mm. And, um, and I, I thought that was, that was interesting. And I've been a little bit haunted, honestly, through the, through the entire pandemic by uh, the, the Christian community in North America I've been haunted by this. Um, you know, even at even in the worst sort of statistical prognostications about the the effect of COVID, it was still, you know, you had a ninety nine percent or ninety eight point five percent chance of surviving it. I mean, it was not a historical risk, anything like even the Spanish flu, for instance, which was killing young people. It was killing indiscriminately, but you know, young people were dying and as well as elderly. Um, so we had that scenario, and yet we had fairly massive interest in eliminating Christian gatherings. And so no communion, no baptisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the practice of the embodied presence of the faith and the 
communion of the saints was just, it was just, we're just going to put that in the back seat for this level of risk. And I'm haunted, and this is what has haunted me, the, the memory of our Christian forebears who snuck into the catacombs, seriously at risk of life and limb, in violation of, of uh, the, the Roman edicts, because they were determined. They used to s- sneak. The reason we have communion like we have it today, where we've isolated it to the bread and the wine, it used to be interwoven with a fellowship meal, and it turned into the bread and the wine only because they they couldn't sneak through the streets with baskets of food to go to Christian gatherings. And so um, there is this determination to gather that transcended a some level of risk that found some of these people, you know, in the Colosseum with the lions as a result of their their commitments. I suspect so. what we believe about um, communion, the bread and the wine, what we believe about baptism probably uh, is behind why we've stopped viewing them as necessities. Mm. What, what the early church believed about those things and what we in the 21st century believe about those things is widely divergent, and a materialistic worldview has everything to do with that. So it's not... It's not an unrelated topic to discuss our current 21st century assumptions about the the purely materialistic symbolism of those elements um, and our, our readiness to jettison our, uh, our participation in those things during at a time of great risk. Okay. Well, and so I'm a— so I'm Great a, being relative, but— Great, yeah, great. Well, so— I'm a youth pastor. One of the things youth pastors are very well aware of is the idea of risk. I kind of have a joke. <laughs> I kind of have a joke with my uh, youth right now that you know if they ask me to do something, I say, "Well, did you sign the waiver?" <laughs> and so they sort of know that means, okay, well, we can maybe do that. Um, and it, I'm one of those people who I've made decisions about how we're going to go to camp or where we're going to go to camp based upon statistical studies of the rollover percentages of vans, right? So I am very well aware of what risk assessment looks like. And when it comes to youth ministry, one of the things, a mantra for decades has been less risk, less risk. How can you put less risk in there? And one of the things that I've sort of had to confront over the last couple of years is, to your point, Keith, uh, we, we will never get to zero. Yep. And... We have to find the line where we say this is this is worth doing, according to Christ's command and Christ's design, regardless of the risk. Yeah. So yes, you're right. There's a so Christian wisdom charts the course um, ahead uh, using virtue, right? So there's a difference between wisdom and fact, <laughs> it, which is not to say that wisdom is void of fact or that facts are dangerous or something like that. We're not, we're not, we're not trying to do that. We're not trying to say that, but wisdom assumes that we don't have all the information and that's sort of counterintuitive knowledge. In fact, assumes that we have all the information and have drawn all the right conclusions. Wisdom on the other hand, assumes we don't have all the facts Mm. and it encourages you to chart a course ahead by virtue so there's a certain blindness that, that wisdom assumes that humans live with, a certain—we um, uh, are not omniscient, okay? A lack of omniscience, only, only God is, and so that's why we exercise wisdom. And here's the interesting thing. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, courage is not the only virtue. Uh, 
but it's the form that every virtue takes at the testing point. This is a time for courage. Whatever you think the risk is, great or small, it's a time to pursue virtue, to pursue value with courage, right? That's the way forward with wisdom. Um, and, and, and I think that I think that Christians have forgotten that, you know. I'm, I, I was sort of dismayed in the same way that you were haunted by our lack of meeting. I was kind of haunted by the, how few Christians were considering the Christian virtues in their response to this whole thing, you know. Um, I, it, it was just—it felt like, to me, at the very beginning, and even still today, there are some who— who won't do anything unless their doctor gives them permission. Um, I, I don't think that's I don't think that's the way forward for Christian community. And so, to kind of go back to one of my earlier examples, there's sort of this question throughout the pandemic in which you would have pastors making choices about their churches, about where they would meet, how they would meet, what they would do at those meetings. There was a while where I think California was trying to ban congregational singing yeah in uh, yeah. during the pandemic because the the uh capital t capital s the science said um that that would cause greater covid spread it would it would turn these church meetings into super spreaders and uh i i remember wondering okay let's assume again we've talked about the limitations pretty thoroughly in this podcast let's assume they're right let's assume singing would spread covid more and yet we are commanded to sing. We are commanded by our Lord to get together, to assemble, and to glorify him through song. Mm-hmm. And, there was, and there's a part of me that says, even if the risk is we turn every Sunday into a super spreader. I'll go, I'll go on record saying this. Even if that were the case, we are commanded to sing. Mm. And, so, and so sing we must. You know, the same thing with, I think, the Lord's Supper. We are commanded to step in and to take the Lord's Supper on a regular mm-hmm. basis. And there was a, 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 lot, of, a lot of fear, and, and, and some justified, some unjustified perhaps, about the risk of eating food in the presence of others during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And there was wisdom that had to be exercised in a lot of that, but we are commanded to take the supper together. Mm-hmm. And so take yeah. it, we must. Yeah, there's an interesting... We haven't talked about, maybe we maybe we could, I don't know, but we haven't talked about the difference between wisdom and precaution. And those yeah. two things have been conflated, I think, uh, for, for longer than over the, the last couple of years, but certainly have been conflated over the last two years. So a difference maybe between wisdom or precaution as an example in church history. So the, the answer of many churches uh, during the pandemic when we said, okay, it's not safe for certain people, especially high-risk groups, uh, elderly, sick, you know, pre-existing conditions, they can't come into our space and eat communion or we could kill them, right? And so there was this, there was this question going on, how do we mm-hmm. handle this? And so the answer for a lot of churches was, tell them not to come to communion. And they would, they would package that as wisdom. The early church had a different answer to this, and that was, oh, well, you're right. We need to, take, we need to wisely steward these people's lives but we also need to wisely steward their souls and not refuse them communion. And so they would send their elders house by house, bringing communion themselves to these people and saying, you need this, but you also need to, you know, have some distance from the congregation. So and, we, 
um, it probably should go without saying, but I'm going to go ahead and say it so that anybody who's listening to this later, someone's going to say, well, you guys said throw caution to the wind and just go to church no matter what. Um, what we're saying ultimately here is not to take no precautions as it relates to right. your health. Right. We're not saying throwing caution to the wind. What we are saying, though, is health exists on a hierarchy of priorities. Yes. And that there may be higher, there may be priorities more important than uh, dodging one particular disease. Dodging one particular disease, um, and and so that's really the point we're making. We're not saying be cavalier with your life. That's right. We're saying that wherever your life sits on the hierarchy of values, it may not be the pinnacle right. in some cases. One of the things I would counsel Christians to consider is, what are your non-negotiables? Yes. You know, we, we're not—I think we've stopped being—scientism relieves you of the responsibility of, de, of, of developing, forming your own principles, okay? Um, you don't have to be a person of principle because scientism promises that it can preserve your life— and that the ultimate good is the preservation of your life. Um, being a principled person, on the other hand, assumes that there are some things, as we've said already, worth laying our lives down for, certain non-negotiables that should I meet with risk, I will take the risk. I will accept the risk based on these non-negotiable principles. Like, my wife is one of those non-negotiable principles. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um I, if she needs me, if there's if there's some way that I can love her faithfully or well, um, it doesn't matter what risk is is presented to me. The preservation of my life is of little concern. Yeah, it's of concern, right? <laughs> but of little concern when it comes to my wife, because my marriage is a principle; it's a non-negotiable for me. Right, and for for Christians, the non-negotiables are often other people. Um, it's mm-hmm. often the choice of, well, is this going to be riskier to me, but will it benefit, you know, is it a love of God or love of neighbor situation, right? And wisdom will dictate what that looks like. I know a lot of Christians kind of have some some really interesting arguments about how do we love God and love neighbor in the midst of something like a pandemic. And that's a good conversation to have, but we have to start with a conversation with, and no matter how you take that, no matter where you go with that, there will be risk. You know, we used to have a category for, to your, to your point, Keith, um, wisdom to the excess to where it becomes a, a vice because you've no longer, you're no longer doing anything other than preserving yourself. We used to call it cowardice. Like, we used to have, like, a term right. for this, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think cowardice takes a lot of different forms. Um, but it's when you say, I'm going to take preservation of life, you know, what science can tell me and put that at the top with no other consideration. Mm -hmm. And again, that is not to say do not be wise. I've done a lot of things in my life to keep myself alive. I've gone into serious debt before to make sure that (laughs) my body doesn't fall apart um, Mm -hmm. on me because I've got got a a purpose that God has for me. Um, So I think this is a good chance here to... um to, to talk about this one last time. We're, we're, we're going to wrap up the conversation here in a minute, but I'd like us to talk about the continuum of Christian per, uh, perspective on doctors, medicine, science, and how we relate to that. Because on the one hand, you've got ex- you've got extremists on both ends. You've got extremists yes. on the one hand who, um, I mean, their entire faith 
groups who uh, among Christians who say you can't use medicine if you ever use medicine if you ever go see a doctor you're doing something wrong you're not really trusting God and faith only only ever trust God right so if you take a Tylenol for a headache you've demonstrated your lack of faith okay there's that group and they're different there that is not hyperbole by the way that is actually what that group believes and then on the other hand you've got those who say we Everything that Jesus commands us to do and to be about as a church really is up to the doctors to tell me whether or not it's safe to do that. So they've sort of elevated safety and medical well-being um, up to the highest— Yeah, above every other consideration. Uh, up, above every other consideration. So you've got both those extremes. Those who won't ever go to the doctor, right, because they believe that it's not faithful, and then those on the other end who won't ever go to church <laughs> because— um, right. Because the doctors won't let them do it. Their faith in science or scientism won't let them do that. So what is a healthy Christian relationship to doctors, <laughs> to medicine, right, to to physical well-being and preservation? What, what would you guys say? I would start by saying thank God for them. Um, for who? For the, the doctors, okay. um, in the sense that— uh, the Lord, you know, I, I I push back against that perspective that to take medicine is to distrust God because we still farm. Like, we don't just walk around the fields plucking whatever fruit happens to be hanging from the vines. We know that God has given us work to do and dominion to exhibit, and so he has yes. given us a good world full of good things. And so in any way that we can use the world he has given us to develop our own skills for preserving human life, yeah. that is a goal that all Christians should applaud yeah. vigorously. I think that's a great point. Medicine is one form, not the only form, not even the best form necessarily, of human dominion yes. that God has so, given us. Yeah, so I, I think that, but I think, you know, all of this needs to be understood in a context. So... um I'm. I personally am really in favor of medicine. I'm a huge <laughs> beneficiary. I mean, more than anybody listening to this, mostly probably even knows. I mean, I've had sort of extraordinary intervention in my life, and I'm only here on this podcast because of that. So I'm a big believer in medicine. But having said that, no one forced themselves on me, and so I think there is this fundamental issue that we face throughout these couple of years, which is in the absence of perfect knowledge. Do we default toward control or toward liberty? Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of those areas where um, I think we we love medicine and we people should have liberty to pursue medicine and medical treatment. But that's a very different thing than saying whether we should give medical authorities uh, control over the the community of faith. Right. Um, it's one thing for someone in that community to seek medical help and receive that. It's another thing for for that community to make itself subservient to um, the medicine as the ultimate virtue right. that must be pursued. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why there's an entire discipline called bioethics, and yeah. it's the idea that there are things science can do that maybe science shouldn't do or ways that science could do it that would be actually morally wrong. Right. It's kind of interesting to me that that's a scientific discipline mm -hmm. as though science could somehow uh, police itself. Like, 
science doesn't have transcendent moral values by which it could judge itself. Mm -mm. Um, So Christians need to step into that space, to your point, Keith, and say, we actually know what the transcendent values humans should be pursuing are. And so we can help science say, okay, here's where your medical practice is actually infringing upon what it actually means to be human. And what it means to be Christian. One of the things that you both highlighted that I think um, Christians have to take into account is that we don't have exhaustive knowledge of science doesn't have exhaustive knowledge or understanding of our bodies, of the sicknesses, of the risks, of any of those things. There's no, no one, no one source on the planet has exhaustive knowledge and understanding of those things. God is the only one who is omniscient, just also happens to be omnibenevolent, okay? Mm-hmm. Which means he's all good. Too. He not only knows everything, but he's all good, and he's all powerful. What we choose to do, and Kyle, you brought this up earlier, as Christians, what we choose to do in any scenario where risk is involved, and by the way, living on earth is a risk. It's an inherent risk, okay? So if you're living on the earth, you're living with risk, all right? Um, what we have to, what drives our choices is our ultimate purpose, We have to remember, as Christians, we've been bought with a price. We are for this world, but we are not ultimately for this world. We are ultimately for the next. And our choices here have to reflect that truth, that reality. And so we will give privilege and pride of place to the family of God because it's an eternal thing. It's not a temporal thing. We, we do believe that the, that the church is, when it's gathered together, is Christ's body, is Christ's continued presence in the world. And so we'll, 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 we'll privilege that, that gathering over and against other things, over and against other risks or considerations, because that's an eternal perspective, not merely a temporal one. So someone, someone once said, when you squeeze an orange juice, what do you get? Or when you squeeze oranges, <laughs> sorry, spoiler yeah. alert. Yeah. Um, when you squeeze an orange, what do you get? I assume now orange, orange juice. juice. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah. wouldn't have known if I hadn't spoiled yeah, it, right? Right. So when you squeeze an orange, you get you get orange juice. In the same way, when you put people under pressure, what's inside will come to the surface. What we value most will come to the surface, and under pressure, do Christians value what Jesus values most? Hmm. At the end of the day. So we're going we're gonna to wrap this conversation up. I've sort of given my last words. I'd like to give you guys a chance to share maybe one thought um, with the listening audience, something on your heart with regard to all this. Um, wh- how can we help Christians navigate uh, the, the presumed tension between science or scientism and Christian faith, courage, and virtue? What advice would you offer to the listening audience on on that topic? So it's somewhat of a recap of several things I've said so far. But I would I would really, really encourage um, the listening audience, anybody within the sound of my voice, um, to really question what place does science have in their understanding of their own purpose. So... Um, I have not had the brushes with uh, mortality that many pe- many other people have. But over this last year, I had a, I had a pretty serious health condition in which um, 
I was sort of rushed into surgery because I had a clot in my arm and there was some there was some questions about how dangerous that could get for me pretty fast and I had to I had to wrestle with okay how am I using my time what is Kyle for what sort of interventions should we you know put in place to make sure Kyle can keep doing what Kyle's doing and it it sort of confronted me with this really I think a sickly perspective I had in my soul that Kyle's life should be about keeping Kyle safe. And I just sort of confront that in a really weird way over the last year um, because there was a lot of things, to your point, Ben, that I didn't know, that mm-hmm. questions that science couldn't answer fast enough for me. Mm-hmm. And so in the gap of those answers, what was going to be my virtue? What was going to be my purpose? And so we really need to stop viewing science as a way to answer questions yeah. and more as a tool in the tool belt of Christians pursuing virtue and faithfulness. Right. So when I'm stepping into the unknown, which we do every day, I'm going to say, doctor, can you, can you help me do this more faithfully? And the doctor's going to give me some perspective, but I'm also going to ask my pastor. I'm also going to be asking my friends who know me and who know what my purposes are. I'm going to ask my wife, uh, how, what should I do stepping forward into this? Uh, they are not a one-stop shop for truth. Elsa didn't ask anyone before she went into the unknown. The unknown. Yeah, so. She just went off on her own. She started singing to the not unknown. wise. Yeah. Which was, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, right. I will preserve everyone from that yeah, suffering. Well, you yeah. do you if that's, if that's what yeah. you're about, I guess. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that uh, I love science. I, I, I've spent my days in working in technology and doing things related to enabling more science. I'm a, I'm a big fan, but I'm also cognizant of the limitations. One of the, one of the best data scientists I know, uh, when people ask him what he does, is I've heard him more than once say, "Well, I'm a, I'm a data scientist, but none of us really know what we're doing." And I love that response that he gives to people because um, it reflects a fundamental humility that's necessary to make any kind of accomplishment happen in the field of science. And I think that one of the things that has alarmed me over the last couple of years is the lack of humility with which um, those who would claim to be our authorities have it, have acted in, behar- in, in regard to the really limited scientific knowledge that they've had at times. And so I think it's shows great shows the wisdom of God that he did not put scientists as leaders within the body of Christ. He put shepherds, pastors. And this is not merely a scientific undertaking. It is a concern for souls. It's a concern for the body as a whole and the community and the maturity of faith that places a value on human life, but not really the ultimate value. Jesus certainly didn't place the ultimate value on his own life. He, he considered our lives worth more, and, our, and more than that, our, our uh, restor- restoration in right relationship with God more. I, I've, I've been struck by one of the assumptions that has sort of pervaded so much in this uh, last couple of years, that um, so quickly rushed to the view that um, our faith, our our church is mostly a matter of information uh, dissemination. As someone I read this week said, 
you know, it's maybe one of the lessons we've learned over the last two years is that the body of Christ cannot be live streamed. Hmm. We, uh, community doesn't happen on the internet, notwithstanding what people think about social media. Uh, community comes, you know, yesterday we had 50 people at our house for lunch, um, from a community of folks here at our church and, and the hugs and How the touches. How dare you? Yeah. The, the hugs and the touches and the, and the tears that flowed and were visible, uh, you know, in, in little side conversations that people were having. Uh, this is, this is not something that's achievable from a distance. And so I'm not saying everyone should gather in crowds and homes, regardless of the risk. I mean, wisdom needs to be brought to bear, but here's the thing. We cannot subjugate all of these concerns to only one thing. In the name of science, um, which is not the ultimate arbiter of value for for people of faith. And um, I think we submit ourselves to Christ. We own the humility of our lack of understanding, and we seek to live honoring him regardless of the cost, whatever that means. Yeah, so as a lead pastor of Lake Ridge, as a lead pastor of Lake Ridge, um, and uh, assuming that most everyone listening to this is a member of Lake Ridge Bible Church, I want to just conclude by saying, if you're listening to this and you haven't returned to church yet, we love you, we miss you, we need you here. We really do. We understand um, that there are a variety of constraints and reasons for for making decisions one way or the other. Um, but we invite you back. Not, not, we're not promising that it's safe to be here. We could never make that kind of promise. We're not going to promise that there's no risks involved in gathering together with God's people. But we do promise that it's good to be together. And um, we pray for you daily and long to see you again. Science is a good tool that God has given us to preserve human life and further human flourishing. We are thankful for scientists and medical professionals who glorify God through their work in this field. But science has its limits. Science is not equal to truth. It cannot guide our values because it can only help tell us what is, not what should be. It cannot keep us fully safe because only God knows all things and directs our days. Life is full of risks and one of those risks lies in giving authority to science that it cannot bear, which is called scientism. A religious confidence that science gives us all truth, can dictate all wisdom, and can point to our purpose. Christians must choose faithfulness to following Jesus through loving God and loving neighbor, assessing the risks and according to godly wisdom, but never failing to fulfill our purpose. This has been a Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing. Thank you.